Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today is Lauren Groff, author of two short story collections, Delicate Edible Birds and Florida, the latter a finalist for the National Book Award and winner of the Story Prize as well as the novels The Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, and Fates and Furies, the latter also a finalist for the National Book Award. She joins us today to discuss her most recent novel, Matrix, which is one of the fall's most anticipated novels. She's been a great friend to the Swanee Review, publishing with us twice, and a great friend to me. She's also a mother of two boys and a terrific literary citizen. Lauren, welcome to the Swanee Review podcast. I'm delighted to be here and not as good a literary citizen as you, Adam Ross. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the show. You're welcome. It's, we're, we're really thrilled. And um, having been, you know, essentially living in a nunnery, living in this abbey, it's a favorite book of mine, of yours. And I just, I was, I was really taken with it. And so I'm very excited to talk to you about it. So I thought I'd jump in though. It's probably worthwhile for you to describe this novel to our listeners or, you know, like the three people in the literary world who don't know what this book is about yet. Matrix is the imagined life of a real poet, the first female poet in French, uh, Marie de France, who was the author of other things, one things, but also the lay, which are these extraordinary, fantastical short stories in, in poetry form. And um, I've been in love with her for, I don't know, 20 years now. And I've wanted to do something about her, but I didn't know what until the Trump years when I was just so tired of oleaginous men yelling at me on the radio all day long. I started this this story in order to spend time in a female utopia, tracing the life of Marie through when she was 17, sent this uh, illegitimate child of royalty to an abbey to take over and and make the abbey actually stop being a starving place and start to become a place of safety and beauty and abundance. I read this book really resisting the urge to do any background research. Oh, good. Okay. I mean, which I think is a great way to come in and, and read it my own sort of vague knowledge of Eleanor of Aquitaine, but also just only the most like background noise about Marie de France. I wanted to talk to you really about how the novel was born. I know that Marie de France is on your radar, Mm -hmm. but I've read that Spark came from a talk that you attended as a fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. And I was hoping you could sort of share, as it were, what that spark was, that catalytic moment, because There's the stuff we as novelists think about telling, want to tell, and then there's the whatever thing happens that suddenly makes things begin to germinate, truly germinate, or or in your words, spark. Yeah, so it's kind of this amazing thing, because until this morning, I had been telling the story of the genesis of this book as a two-pronged thing, but it's actually three-pronged, and I'll get to that in a second. So it was my love of Marie de France, and then... I did go to this lecture by my friend, Dr. Katie Bugis, who's a medieval scholar, and her primary focus is nuns. And I went into it thinking that I was not interested. 
And as she was speaking, I was so profoundly moved by this, this idea of these women who come together many times a day to pray together by singing psalms and, and, uh, everything that, that they do, all of the work that they do in the Abbey was prayer. And as I was sitting there, it was, you know, a, a secular vision of this book came to be, but I don't think that it would have been the book that we have here if Right before this experience of, of sitting and, and seeing my friend give this talk, I hadn't been on a plane and seen that amazing movie, The Women, which is, it is like an extraordinary film, black and white, in which there are only women. And the whole film is them talking to each other. And I love the movie so much, but I hated it also because every single conversation was about men. And so there's this massive missed opportunity there, right? As you know, this is me like sitting on a plane being like, I love, hate, love, hate this movie. And then the next day I went to this lecture and I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I could make a book where um, men are not even seen from the side of the eye. They're sort of like a a vague uh, vapor in the corner of the room. So it's, it was a multi, multi braided event. I love that description of men as kind of a vapor because, because the idea I think that's so central to the novel is ways in which these women, you know, as an expression of a kind of proto feminism are trying to operate within that vapor. Yes. They're trying to stick with the trope to breathe in that world. We'll talk about some more, but I mean, like at what point then, you know, there you are at Radcliffe, there are all these kind of competing sparks. When did you start to feel like you knew Marie de France well enough? Because I guess a question I'd ask in tandem is I I love reading acknowledgments. Mm. They're super revealing in the best possible way. And you talked about your time with the nuns at the Abbey of Regina Laudis in Connecticut. I think it would be really exciting for certain listeners who are working on their own projects to hear how you essentially get in character and also get in milieu and story. Talk about that. Yeah. So Marie actually came to me almost immediately. She herself as a character, because I knew the lay so well. And one of the things that I did in order to create a biography, which is not something that I I knew because there's, we know nothing. Historians know nothing about Marie de France at all. She was not uh, deemed important enough to take down the biographical details of her existence. So there are only suppositions. Some people say she was an abbess. Some people say uh, she was an illegitimate noble. Some people say she was actually Eleanor Vacotin's child from her first marriage to her first king, King Louis, uh, I think the seventh. Nobody knows who she is. But in order to write this narrative, which I saw as I was sitting in the audience, I knew that she had to be an outsider. She had to be awkward. She had to be um, brilliant, right? But also deeply incapable of, of fitting into the very narrow gender constraints that, as you said, the structures of the church and and the patri- and the patriarchy and the patriarchy and the hierarchies, right? Uh, the, the very rigid hierarchies of the t- it was a feudalist system outside of the church and feudalist probably within the church too. And let me just let me just yeah. say, I mean, it's one of the it's one of the really beautiful moments at the end. I mean, this is it's not a spoiler alert, but there's this beautiful moment at the end where she's reunited with her girlhood friend Cecily. She says to her, "Your ugliness is a gift. <laughs> Your ugliness is what 
basically gifted you with the opportunity to run this abbey and and essentially embower all these women. But anyway, sorry. Continue. Yeah, right, right. But of course, Maria all of her life thought that she was thrown out because of it, right? And she, pro- I mean, she was raw. She she liked to uh, dispute with the men and that the women just did not do that at the time. That was not okay to do. She liked to do sword fighting. <laughs> so I went back to her actual work, the the actual Marie de France's work. And I looked at the lay and I looked at the fables, which I feel fairly certain are actually from the same person. And I went slowly enough to take out of those really vivid images, the most vivid images I could. And then at the end, I had maybe 150 images and ideas out of which I sort of what that was the the substructure of the biography that I ended up writing because I wanted to have something to hinge. And the only thing that I could hinge this book on was her own words, right? That her actual words of the actual Marie de France. So if one were to go back uh, with good knowledge of the work of Marie de France and and look, you'd see, you know, a hundred different moments that were actually from her own work. But it's true. I think that I went to the Abbey of Regina Laudis, not, it was a complicated moment, right? I think Talking about a closed, cloistered, enclosed community, especially a community of religious, you have to be careful not to simplify too much, not to deify too much. Or, or I think an impulse would be to to make these women saints. I wanted to sort of see the way that there were really small tensions. And I wasn't able to spend much time with the nuns because, of course, they're in full enclosure. But you are invited if you're a guest of the Abbey, and it's a Benedictine rule that people are given hospitality, and so you're fed, you're put up in a guest house. But one of the things that they ask is that you work with the nuns. So I went out in, I think it was November, and I I pulled up dead plants out of the gardens, and I chopped wood for three hours, which, you know, for me, I'm not used to chopping wood. Half an hour is enough. Like, it's a lot of chopping. And there are these, like... Very brittle, very small, maybe 70-year-old nuns who are just chopping. I've never seen a human chop so fast. It was really (laughs) extraordinary. It was amazing. And I just sort of fell in love with this life of contemplation and prayer. I mean, a lot of the songs that they sing are psalms that that would have been sung in the 12th century, right? Maybe the, the musical setting is a little bit different. But it was it was so beautiful to sit there at a mass and sort of feel the the undercurrent that is not quite visible. And I think that that part was really, really necessary to actually go in person and to to soak in. Our job as novelists is to sort of try to take something from nothing, right? To, to sort of, if, if, for instance, we're at a restaurant and we're looking, we're waiting for a friend to come and we're looking at people, I think the novelist's job is to suppose story, right, on the people and, and try to understand who they are through very small, subtle cues. And so my job at the Abbey was to notice someone wincing when someone sang, right? And be like, okay, I can see, I can see there's tension between these two and I'm trying to understand what's happening. I mean, nuns are human and humans are a mess. Here's a quote of yours I love. Historical fiction comes out of the time of its creation. One cannot talk about the contemporary world, we are creatures of the moment, while Matrix is about the 12th and 13th centuries, it's still also about the 21st century. How then? What connections did you make between then and now? And 
I wasn't going to think of asking this question, but did you just like kill all auto fictionist practitioners? Did you just like wipe them out? <laughs> like, like Marie, no. just like, <laughs> like none of you know what's going on. <laughs> no, not at all. No, right. <laughs> I would love to write an autofictional book at some point. Um, <laughs> I think I think that is the argument for autofiction, right? Is that you can't encapsulate the world unless you're doing it without the artifices of uh, fictional convention. I can only imagine while you were writing this, there were ways in which you were you were just making connections without without. I, I mean, maybe some critics will accuse you of this, but without necessarily being didactic. But I mean, that there were ways in which you were like, this sheds a very interesting light on this current moment. And I thought you might talk about that. Yeah. You know, I guess I don't care what critics say. And it's not that like, I'm not saying, like, go ahead, like, lambaste me. Um, but I, I, it's not for me, right? I, I think the act of criticism is never for the writer. It's always for a larger conversation. And I think that's why hard criticism is good. But I, I actually wouldn't object to that criticism because I think it's quite intentional. So I think I, I and you probably only write novels if there's this great darkness that we want to look into, right? A yes, darkness at the center of who we are. Luckily, I'm full of darkness. <laughs> so I've got a few more books than me. Just yes. for our listeners, she's wearing all black. I know. Anyway, so. I mean, like, come on. Yeah. But it's this sort of cloud and nebulous in form that's constantly shifting. So the, the act of writing fiction is the act of trying your hardest to, to put light into there. And, and so you're trying to look as hard as possible. So one of the things that developed as I was writing the multiple drafts of this was that I am desperate to never overlook climate change right? <laughs> because it is the single existential threat that actually might take down humanity there were other ones that could have they hadn't up to this point it is a moral issue right it's a moral issue for writers and this is where i do have some issues with autofiction writers if we are not engaging with it at all and it's fine to engage with it just a little bit if we're not engaging with it at all what are we doing, right? I, and maybe this is, this is my, my own prejudice, possibly, my own bias. But the thing is, humans have been changing their climate since fire was invented, right? The first time a person actually cut down a tree, that's climate change. That, that was the beginning, right? And I think I was really, really interested in trying to trace where we came to now back through the centuries and trying to see the the way that the hegemony at the time bred into the people that believed in it some of the the ideas that led back into the future into this present moment so for instance the church the catholic church at the time of marie and eleanor had already embarked on a crusade, and then Eleanor and Marie both went on the second crusade. There are multiple crusades where there's the imposition of Christianity on Jerusalem, right? And other places along the way too, like Edessa. And it became, that was like proto imperialization, right? Like the empire began, <laughs> the Christian empire. And I think that a lot of the impulses that went into the crusades are directly related to the way that the the world is the way that we are interacting with our environments now 
and with other countries now. I think it's, it's, it's a single thought parsed over the past thousand years. And it, it comes directly out of that time. Okay, but there's a really interesting, just straight ahead novelistic irony in the, in the book about this, which is that, and I'm just curious how consciously you were working it, but as Marie essentially both labyrinths and broadens the abbey, as it were, stake makes a greater and greater land stake on, you know, a place that, that is this Arcadia, this utopia, this Shangri-La, there's climatological destruction. That's exactly my point. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the irony, right? Even though she's resisting the the larger forces, the larger hierarchy, she's still internalized that all a lot of it. And this is also why, you know, I have no patience for I mean, I went to the women's march in DC, but I've I don't have a whole lot of patience for this idea that if we were to to make the world be run only by women, it would look any different. Um, I think we've all internalized the same lessons, and they're ugly. And women are human, uh, right? And women are subject to vice um, and and anger in the same way as men. And maybe it would be a different flavor of empire, but it would still be empire. I, you know, it, it would be hard to shake these past few thousand years from our mindsets now. You've already pointed out one, but there are so many fascinating themes to discuss in this novel. But I thought you might start with, well, not start, we'll continue with the relationship between Marie de France and Eleanor of Aquitaine. Because in many ways, they're, they're two pol- polarities of the expression of female power, you know, who are sundered at the novel's outset, but they're connected throughout. And I was wondering what you were trying to explore about the feminine exercise of power through that relationship. Mm. Yeah, so the model for that relationship actually came out of um, a separate narrative model that emerged through Eleanor's court. So there was the narratives of the church, right, which is what most people lived by at the time. Then there's courtly love, uh, right, the, the narratives of courtly love, which had a very codified set of rules. And in stories of courtly love that were coming out of the time, The beloved is always distant, right? And as soon as you directly express love, it goes away, right? There's like 15 rules. They're really amazing to look up if, if you're interested in that. And I, part of this, this relationship comes out of the fact that Marie was raised believing in that kind of narrative and not necessarily in the the Christian narrative as strongly. So that that was the the primary set of stories that she she lived by. But at the same time, I love Marie. She but she could not have done what she needed to do if she didn't have a distant goal. I think Eleanor was her distant goal. It was her her person that she measured herself against and the person that she desired and the person that she hated (laughs) and loved at the same time. I feel a little bit as though I'm talking about myself in in some ways, but I have to, I have to externalize my rage onto something (laughs) in order to survive. And I think that that was something that Marie had to do to survive and she externalized it and it became both love and, and hatred. Right. But in terms of power, Eleanor was born into an enormous amount of power. She was, when she was born, one of the the wealthiest humans in Europe, Aquitaine being one of the, the wealthiest places. And she was the only heiress. 
And so she knew when she was about to marry that she could marry anyone, right? And of course, at the time, that was her her only freedom was the, the choice of who to marry. She married her first king. She had children. That was that was something. And then she got an annulment, leapt the channel, and married her second king, and then had children who became kings and saints and queens of Castile. So Eleanor is this person who, through the the arts of femininity of the time, was able to wield her power in the direction she chose to. And that, that was actually, so she, she both conformed to conventions and through conforming to them was able to buck them, which I find a very fascinating way to, to go. This is almost Kardashian-like. Uh, right? And, but Marie, on the other hand, would never have the ability to do that because she's a simpler person. She does not have the subterfuge that Eleanor was able to have. But she took enough from her observations of Eleanor to know that she had to both build power by building a network of spies and correspondence and favors and to disseminate in the world what Eleanor disseminated, which is stories, right? Story being the ultimate power, as we're seeing even today, right? With, with Facebook, story is the stories that are happening on Facebook. Competing stories. Competing Competing stories. They become, yeah. Like, I don't know. Have you ever read China Mieville's The City in the City? No. Oh, it's amazing. It's this amazing book where there are two cities overlaid on top of each other and they share the same physical place, but um, nobody is able to acknowledge the other city. It is absolutely wild. It's an amazing story. So I almost feel like that's what's happening with our country, at least with the proliferation of two different narratives about reality and truth. Eleanor understood that very, very early. The real historical Eleanor understood that very, very early. In my book, the fictional Marie took that from her and understood it as well. Well, but, but what's interesting about the difference between them and, and one, of the, one of the distinctions is that what Marie ends up doing what Eleanor can leverage within the structure has international implication mm-hmm. and works in tandem with the patriarchy. Yes. Yes. What Marie's genius, in spite of her network of spies, is always about the preservation of the local. Yeah. Yes. Her matrix is local. And Eleanor's is something which, like a radio signal, I think given the vapors in which she operates comes in and out of focus. Right. right? You know what yes. I mean? Because, because yeah. it's a very much a different world. And I think one of the things that's an irony, I thought you were really wonderfully sensitive to in the novel is that the farther Marie gets from the Abbey, the more her power diminishes. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it, it's like sort of a reverse kind of kryptonite. The further she is from the place, the less she's able to wield, but she has tremendous freedom within that structure. Yeah. Like all great characters, Marie is a person of extraordinary tensions and contradictions. And I was hoping you could talk about the visions oh, yeah. <laughs> of Marie de France and how they speak to the complex demands a woman faces as she grows in power and secures it. Because Marie herself struggles to determine at times, it seemed to me, whether or not these visions were born out of ego. Mm-hmm. Or whether they're actually divine inspiration. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, it you know, it's I'm not going to say it's radical, but it but it is one of those tensions in, yeah. the, in the book. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So 
I've been in love with medieval mystics forever, especially uh, Hildegard von Bingen. I think she's amazing. I spoke to Hildegard. And she's oh, you a did? Big, she's a big fan of. Hers. Oh my god! Anyway. Oh, tell her ghost to come visit someday. I, I would love to. I would love to sing medieval <laughs> notation with her. I guess because <laughs> we have no other way of communication. <laughs> so I, I think that mystics are extraordinary, especially in this time, right? Where. The hierarchy was just a very, very, very intense cage for women, just period. And gen- women at the time were, were not worth more than your favorite dog, basically, right? Like the best greyhound you had to go hunting with was a little bit less than your wife. So in order to, within a very, very rigid church, one that has and continues to deny the power of women, these mystics were able to use... um gifts from either heaven or their own genius, or maybe both, in order to create spaces of power that they could operate in and give themselves um, freedom and room to, to move and, and negotiate. So someone like Hildegard, who was a polymath, she was a composer, she wrote a medical tome that was used for four centuries afterward. She created her own abbey, and she was able to do that by fundraising, by having visions, right? And so the visions get out into the world. They become the story of this holy woman that holiness reverberates back into her and gives her power. For the record, I believe in the visions of Hildegard. <laughs> uh, I believe she actually had them, but I'm really, really interested in the way that they are able to wriggle much more freedom and space for themselves through them, right? It, it was an amazing tool, mystical visions. Okay, so trafficking then in the gray, I think this would be a great time for you to set up this one passage I'd love you to read because in some ways, it seems to me it's to me like a really remarkable scene in the book where this one very beautiful and let's call her self-aware nun is welcomed in to the Abbey late in Marie's career as the abbess. She has a sort of preternatural understanding of how power operates within the Abbey. So could you just like set up that passage? Sure. You did a great job setting it up. I just have to say But Sproda comes in. She's this beautiful person, as you said. Uh, She has been raised her entire life to be someone of great power within the church, right? Then there had been women historically in the historical record who were raised to to do this, who were given to the church in order to be abbesses. Great. is the only career path other than marriage and procreation for a woman at the time. So Sproda comes in. She's sort of radiant. And she starts to preach to the bees. She starts to slowly resist Marie's power in really canny ways, in ways that Marie has a really hard time actually um, pushing against herself. But she underestimates Marie, who is also has become cognizant of the way the power moves, too. So in this passage, Marie goes to talk to her old friend who does not like the way that her abbey is being run right now. And as they're sitting there, something happens that sparks Marie's idea about how to get rid of Sproda. (laughs) Marie begins to talk of Sproda. Although Marie can feel Ruth's spiky anger, she can also feel the other woman listening. As she speaks, Marie sees the slow movements of the street, the white goose marching forth with her retinue of goslings, the child crouching to shit behind a bundle of sticks, the carts loaded with turnips and rags, the horses intent on their own forward movement, 
the massing of those seeking alms at the Elmenrig gates. In the alley at the edge, there is a brown movement, which Marie fixes on, thinking an enormous rat or perhaps a swarm of rats. Then, when it moves into the light, she sees it is a pair of lepers, crouched to hide, the mother advanced in her illness, her fingers and toes shortened, her nose dissolved, and great lumps upon her face, the child with an eye whitened in blindness and the eyebrows gone. They cling human heaps. A woman in fine black linen, passing upon the street, sees the pair now creeping into the sunlight and spits a great gob upon them, and behind her the two small girls trailing in tiny copies of their mother's dress also spit as they pass. Marie goes silent, watching. Ruth, in whom long friendship has built a window between them, can briefly see inside Marie's mind. Suppressing a smile, she says that this inspiration of Marie's seems more devilish than divine. Marie says that she cannot doubt it is divine, for how else does one explain the Abbey's difficulty in finding a good renter for that little house with its gardens on the far side of town? It is Providence. She has been shown their path. And the women stifled their laughter with solemn faces and watched the alms being given out and the lepers, the last to creep to the gate, holding out their bowls and bowing. Before Marie returns to the Abbey, she leaves instructions with Ruth. She embraces the other woman who does not embrace her back. When Marie has swallowed her hurt and mounted her horse, Ruth at last says carefully that she loves her friend Marie, but she hates the devil that has possessed her abbess with all her eternal soul. At evening meal, Marie can look with calmness again upon Sprota, who glows with the conviction of her own inner divinity. In the morning, Marie calls for a special gathering. So many nuns, Marie thinks, looking at those faces arrayed before her. Perhaps the abbey has grown to touch its limit. More nuns will have to die before she accepts new ones. Well, if anything, death is a constant here. She rises, they hush, she speaks. She tells movingly of what she has seen in town, the poor mother leper and her child, the spitting, the human life lesser than that of street bitches with their teeth scraping the earth. How, in the Bible, the lepers are healed with love. How it is the nun's duty to care for the most wretched of the earth. Her nun's faces blaze with goodness. Oh, how she loves them. She says at last that after much prayer she has been given a vision to found a house of lepers with its own gardens at the edge of town, and that the abbey shall undertake to care for those most wretched souls. And with this news, the faces of her nuns are eager, for most are truly women of God devoted to their faith. Marie goes on, and after the vision, she prayed all night to seek guidance to choose the one who will be installed as the mistress of lepers. She knelt in the chapel, and by morning she was given her answer. She pauses to build tension. She says that the new mistress of lepers will be the dear novice Sproda. Marie watches as the pink drains out of the girl. The girl stands. She says in an admirably steady voice, what a great honor the abbess has laid upon her head, but alas, Sparta finds herself still but a novice and has not yet taken the veil and has so much to learn before she has made herself equal to her holy sisters. She is devastated that she must stay and learn for years more to come before she could deign to pick up such responsibility. Marie says that she has prayed about this too, and it was told to her that Sparta's special radiance will allow the nuns to overlook the depths of her ignorance. Everyone here has seen it, has seen the way Sparta ministers even to the insects of the earth. 
Because of such godly radiance, she will receive her profession this afternoon. Sproda demurs, oh no, but she is but a worm, she is a dung beetle, she is not worthy of this great honor. Perhaps a nun who's already proven her strength should be mistress of lepers. Surely, subprioress Goda would be fittest in holiness and propriety for this position. Goda juts her chin proudly at being spoken of with such fervor. Marie thinks, smiling, of the sudden vacancy of the subprioress role and the election that would need to be called to fill it. She admires Sproda's wiliness, the chess pieces she moves in her head. Well, doesn't Sproda's modesty reflect well on her, Marie says, such humility and grace. But they must remember, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And, because there can be no further protest, the girl's eyes fill with tears. Those who love her read the tears as pious and are moved. I love that scene. I love that passage. And what it does is it is it injects Marie's deeply spiritual nature with also uh, a kind of canniness and political instinct that, again, reverberates ironically in terms of her relationship with Eleanor and how, again, Eleanor is operating over the over the world. And here's Marie taking care of local business, as it were. But there's another fascinating tension in Marie's character, and that's the tyrannical aspect mm-hmm. of her person. The ways in which she commits apostasy in order to secure the Abbey's premises and protect its inhabitants. <laughs> so talk a little about apostasy and yeah. uh, in all of its forms. So I have to say for the record, in case there are people who are just really angry about this, there is nothing in this book that I hadn't found in my research. Not everything was necessarily truthful. Some things were apocryphal. But so some of the things that Marie slowly takes on that were not necessarily things that women should have taken on at the time where she begins to deliver the mass. And of course, that's like the worst possible thing a woman could do, right? Like imagine a disgusting woman standing in front of people actually and blessing them. And still, even today, that is unheard of in the Catholic Church. Marie starts to take confessions. Now, women actually did that to each other, especially abbesses. But to be the only confessor of an abbey was very, very different. Those are the two main apostasies of it. Yeah. That send ripples throughout the abbey. And in a way... I guess to transition nicely into another section I'd like you to read, there's this remarkable way in which we get to see Marie as a leader, almost like a general thinking on her feet in terms of how to deal with certain threats to the Abbey, because in the case of taking confession, she is able to use that kind of tyrannical aspect to Mm -hmm. further secure the safety of her nuns. So maybe you could set up this second passage I'd like you to read. Throughout this book, Marie expands her power, not only spiritually and within the Abbey, she's also sort of encroaching on the lands outside too. And she does, she dams up the royal lands in order to make sure that they have a source of fresh water, which at the time was used to wash waste away, to give the cows and the sheep something to drink to make ale and if you only had seasonal streams you could only make ale a couple of times a year as opposed to all year round so this was 
truly a way for her to to make sure everyone was comfortable. But she was stealing, right? She was stealing land that wasn't hers. And generally, people don't like it when you steal from them. And the lock is broken. And this water that was supposed to be for salvation of her nuns becomes dangerous, very, very dangerous in this scene. She lies in bed until she hears feet running outside and the bell ringing wildly, and she rises knowing that what she dreaded at last has arrived. She puts on her ancient sealskin cloak that she wears on business outside the abbey and runs swiftly out and through the orchard to the yard. There's a commotion in the dark. Someone shouts the stream is overflowing. The villainesses are yelling in their difficult English. One comes close and says to Marie with her face dark in her hood that, ach, the once some lambro die in such wet. Marie thinks of Gora and her nun sleeping in the fold, and it is as though a cold hand has reached into her chest and stills her heart. She sends Asta and three strong villainesses on horses to the lock, then takes one of the torches being hastily lit and plunges on her fastest legs into the dark sideways rain into the fields toward the sheepfold. She runs and runs, and her running seems endless, the ground sucking at her heels. At last she sees a clump of darkness on her rise that, when Marie nears, reveals the sheep saved, nuns running into the sodden fields waist-deep to save more. Palenesses floating in the dark are drowned sheep. Marie wades into the icy water to her waist, to her ribs. Cold seizes her, and the wet habit grasps at her legs. She finds a ewe standing upon its dead sister, paddling with its front legs in panic, and though the beast is twice the size of an ordinary child and thrashes in her frenzy, Marie picks her up in her arms and carries her to the rise. In the dim, all is dark, until a torch burns closer out of the distance and shows the sudden gleam of pale fleece, the sheep pressed together in a cloud at the height of the hill. More torches streaking forward now, and she sees that the water has risen too high for most of the nuns to go out safely, and they cling to each other, weeping in a knot. Marie is not as strong as she once was. Still, she goes back out, chest deep, brings back two ewes under each arm. Again, 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 the water is to her neck. She holds aloft a lamb that is limp, though it still breathes. But now Goda's face is heaving forward through the dark, her head cloth lost, rain pouring down her cropped skull, eyes narrowed to slits. She is shouting that this is enough, that is enough. They have lost enough. They cannot lose an abyss also. Enough. Marie hears herself audibly shuddering, a groaning rising up from her gut and through her throat, and she can't stop it or stop her teeth from chattering. She puts her head on Goda's shoulder, and the sub-prioress cradles it in her arms. Oh, now, she says to her in her native English, calm now, calm your heart, my dearest, my abbess, as though Marie were an unsettled heifer and the cold rain pours down Marie's neck. Morning reveals the size of the devastation. Three dozen sheep drowned and a calf too small to swim to safety, a nun with water in her lungs. The lock has been forcibly broken and it needs, Asta says gravely, three days to repair. The poor, sodden sheep are put into the orchard for safety. Dumb creatures with no memory, they are happy nosing among the roots for rotten windfall apples. The lamb, dressed doubly in lambskin, has been miraculously saved. It gambles as though it has not already tasted loss. Wolfhild's three eldest daughters come to the abbey unbidden. 
young Wilfield, Havaisa, and Milberga. They stand before Marie, each grave and pale, and she wants to gather them in her arms in her sorrow and guilt. If God had given her grandchildren, it would be these daughters of Wolfhild, whom Marie's pride is now leaving motherless. Marie waits for the angry words from them, the recriminations for letting their mother work herself into her sickbed, but the young women press close kiss her. She does not know why they still love her. She does not deserve their love. It was Marie's violent grief for her love that sickened Wolfhild, Marie's vast pride and arrogance. They say they have examined the broken lock, and it was clearly the work of agents of the crown, and that this fight will continue until it's far worse, until they hunt who did it to the ground. They ask that Marie let them do this work. It is unfit for holy women, and will give the girls solace because the dam and the lock will be the last of their mother's efforts. Wolfhild's labored breath fills the house day and night. She is swollen, wild-eyed. They are glad to escape the house, or they will go mad, they say. They will find the people who broke the lock and ensure that nothing like it will happen again. Marie warns them that if she lets them do this, she is allowing them to commit sins on the part of the abbey. Young Wolfhild smiles, and her eye teeth are sharp like her mother's. Here she is, Marie thinks. The darkest piece of Wolfhild is alive in this one. Young Wolfhild says, isn't it lucky then that Marie is their confessor? It's such a great scene. It's such an incredible set piece. It's so vivid. But what's also to me remarkable about it is the way in which the broader community of the Abbey, Wolfhild's daughters, know that again, within the structure, within this patriarchal structure, there's a way for women to get even. And there's also, Marie realizes, a way to give the nudge, 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 wink, wink, go for it because of the very apostasy or change she's made to the Abbey by being the person to whom these people confess. Right. So I thought it was really brilliant. There's poetic ecstasy in this book. But there's also carnal ecstasy in in Marie's life. It's oh, good. A, we get to talk about this. We do get to talk about <laughs> this because then we're going to move to craft to cool down. Ooh. But um, it's a big part of the book, <laughs> and I was hoping you could discuss it. I mean, to talk about Marie's relationships with Cecily and Nest and Eleanor. I mean, you don't have to talk about all of them. I mean, you can you could pick one for who, who's representative. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. See, <laughs> I thought it was a really brilliant irony in the book that nothing in the Bible forbids these acts of intimacy. Talk about like the oversight of the patriarchy. Exactly. I think this is amazing. This is something from my research also. Imagine who is making the rules at the time. It's men, right? It's it's the the priests who are sort of reading the text and sort of extrapolating from the texts um, this set of I guess sins uh, that one should not engage in. And so throughout Christianity there have been a lot of strictures against sodomy. That's very much in the book. But I think even in, at this time, even in the, the 12th and 13th century, because these, these men who were only around other men, these priests, unless they were, you know, popes and married, 
and they only knew of that kind of sin between men. And they knew of procreation, which is a man and a woman. They just assumed that without a penis, there was no such thing as sex. Female sodomy did not exist. And that's what they called it. There was this lack of clarity there. And so just because it wasn't in there, I think that, you know, of course, nuns were expected not to have sex with one another, right? And I'm sure a savvy abbess knew exactly what was going on. But when you come to confession, which is generally with a priest, a male, and you're trying to confess what happened in the woods, uh, as one is going mushroom picking, um, <laughs> right? um, there wouldn't be the vocabulary to, to talk about exactly. it, right? And and therefore, it wouldn't be a sin. Right. So it's it's kind of astonishing, right? It's this, it uh, is. this funny thing. And in the book, you know, Marie sees this as like absolute liberation, uh, which, you know, uh, humans are humans. And people who want to have sex with women, women who want to have sex with women are, would have happened back then, right? That's a thing that happens. And there are actually in the record a lot of uh, instances of prioresses and abbesses having favorites that they slept in the same bed with. So it happened. So this is something that in the book becomes just a source of absolute delight, right? And it is not for Marie a source of guilt or shame because she's never seen it spoken as a sin, right? This is this, this kind of love. It becomes, it is a, a thing that she yearns for and she's not supposed to. She vaguely understands because it is carnal, but at the same time, it's a gray area. It's always a tricky thing to to negotiate. Writers like Garth Greenwell have done an incredible job oh God, about write, writing directly at sex. Yes. So does Brandon Taylor, as was recently noted actually by Tara Menon in the Swanee Review review of um, Sally Rooney's book. Sally Rooney does actually. Oh, she's a, great. Great at writing. Totally great. Um, I'm here McBride sex. is really good too. Yeah. But it's interesting just seeing how you try to talk about something that essentially doesn't have language, at least among the nuns or, or is framed at least with with Nest, who is essentially the the apothecary doctor mm-hmm. of, of of the place as a kind of release of humors and and so you're talking about something tied to mm-hmm. some kind of vocabulary. Yeah. So it was fascinating. I want to ask a craft question. Okay. And it comes from a quote by Annie Dillard. So I'll I'll read you this quote because I know when one of my friends shared this quote with me, it it hit me like lightning because Mm -hmm. it's been every time I've, whether I'm writing stories or novels, it's the, it's the same issue. And I'm, I'm just wondering how this affected you as you were writing this. So this is Annie Dillard writing every book, a writer must solve two problems. Can it be done? And can I do it? Every book has an intrinsic impossibility that its writer discovers as soon as her first excitement fades. The problem is structural. It is insoluble. It is why no one can ever write this book. Complex stories, essays, and poems have this problem too. The prohibitive structural defect the writer wishes she'd never noticed. (laughs) She writes in spite of that. Mm -hmm. As you were writing this, where were you like, this is impossible. Mm. And there is this problem in this book that is insoluble. To be perfectly frank, after I gave myself, I give myself a certain limited amount of time to do the preliminary historical research because I will otherwise be lost for 15 years and know everything and nothing. 
So it's a short period of time, three to six months, something like that. And then I have to start writing. And after being so besotted by my information, the first few drafts were, the first one was on index cards, I believe. You write, you write, you, you, I remember you told me this, you write the first draft extremely quickly. You're just yeah. like, in, you're just like, as fast Zooming. as possible. Yeah. yeah. It's I, and again for this one I give myself a limited amount of time too. It's it's probably the first draft of almost everything is like 40,000 words. It's not real. It's and I know it's not supposed to be real. It's just supposed to be like sketching basically. Yeah, the first one was on index cards. The second one was on my big notebooks. But they, what they shared is a uh they were just fragments, right? Like fragmentary stories that, that there was no cohesion whatsoever. And then the next few drafts, it was very similar too. And I couldn't understand the underlying structure. And so until I have, with most of my books, a solid sense of the the underlying architecture, they just don't come together. They just don't. And it wasn't until I realized that, oh my God, wait, this labyrinth that I've been writing about is actually my underlying structure. And that's the sort of how I'm going to organize each piece of this story and sort of build it in a, a universal labyrinth that I, I finally had something solid on which to pin all these disparate pieces of information and ideas and scenes and even long scenes. I mean, there there were pieces of that, that this originally that were, I don't know, I don't count in words, but maybe 20,000 words long. Obviously, some of them didn't make it into the book, but it was just a mishmash until I, I understood that formal structure. Isn't it fa- I mean, it's fascinating, right? I mean, I think that there's this moment again, whether it's, I can't speak for, I've only published one poem, but I mean, like I can speak for short stories and novels where something activates the language. There is that lift. And I think, I think it's when you, when you try to deal with that insoluble problem. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. uh, you know, my, my favorite, my favorite sort of anecdote about this is, um, someone, someone once said to Jeffrey Eugenides of the beginning of the version suicides, God, I love the beginning of that novel and Eugenity said, thanks, it took me two years to write right. that first sentence. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But that's true, yeah. right? Suddenly, the ideas are supercharged and they become language, right? It's almost as if the language, language is the the emanation. Yes. Um, yeah. Lauren, I could talk to you about this book for many, many hours. You've been such a great guest. Thank you so much for being on the Swanee Review Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review Podcast. Today's episode of the Tsawani Review Podcast was produced at Subtle Co. Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Tsawani Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesawanireview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages at the Tsawani Review. Until next time, this is the Suwannee Review, new since 1892.